Good morning, everyone. You're listening to What's the Res. Normally, we discuss the current resolutions in the world of high school debate, but given the interesting events that have been happening lately with the whole coronavirus and with the situation with George Floyd, we've decided to make a summer series surrounding specifically the events around George Floyd and even more specifically the broader picture of, of racial injustice and systematic injustice and seeing what we can unpack from that whole idea. So today we have Dr. Ben Voth with us, and I'm going to let Josh introduce him real quick. Go ahead. All right. Dr. Ben Voth is the Director of Speech and Debate at Southern Methodist University. He's also an Assistant Professor on Faculty with Southern Methodist. Uh, we discovered a few months back that uh, we had a connection in common. When he's a, He was the debate coach at Miami University in Ohio when I was competing on the Midwestern Circuit. Uh, so I went up against one of his former uh, great students, who I'm sure is a great speaker still, is uh, Omar Orme of uh, Once Upon a Time fame. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Vogt's student that beat me uh, pretty consistently for about three years in extemp. I was really glad when Omar finally graduated. It meant the, the number one spot was actually available to other competitors. <laughs> All that to say, uh, Dr. Voth has been around the world of speech and debate and actively involved in it for many years. He's also a debate fellow with the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Uh, he, uh, On the scholarship side, he is the author of The Rhetoric of Genocide, Death as a Text, and James Farmer Jr., The Great Debater. Uh, I was really glad that Dr. Voth was willing to come on the show and have a conversation with us. His area of expertise seems to cross a lot of interesting topics in terms of speech, rhetoric, debate, uh, the civil rights era, and also looking at cultivating debate in unexpected places. So, Dr. Voth, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Ethan. I'm really excited to be with you all. Y'all are doing a great job of uh, promoting debate uh, nationwide and probably internationally with this podcast, so I'm really impressed with what you're doing. Oddly enough, our current uh, international stats leader is the Netherlands. We've had 13 people from the <laughs> Netherlands listen to our show this month. <laughs> You never know. That's well, great. Well, Dr. Voth, before we get into uh, specifics about America and our contemporary moment, take a moment and tell us about the work you're doing with debate in Africa. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. I mean, you talk about, you know, you've got some uh, viewers in the Netherlands. I just did some training last week with students in Africa, mainly high school students. They, they may be down to junior high level. Uh, but we had students from South Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda. The focal point really is Rwanda. Um, in December, I spent 20 days in Rwanda and actually traveled to five different sites on a uh, U.S. State Department grant that brought in, uh, it tried to bring in five uh, American coaches. One of them couldn't get their passport done, so there were four of us in uh, the country working. We worked with hundreds of uh, students from across the region. Burundi was in there, uh, a lot of people from Uganda, and most people from Rwanda. Um, I got to train about 50 high school teachers while I was there. And we have been able to continue that with uh, some online training, like I said, that we did last week. And uh, 
I mean, it's really exciting uh, when you're there and you kind of see uh, debate, debate emerging in such a unique context because uh, 2019 was the 25th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. And so really amazing context in which to teach and train debate. Now, you said you got a U.S. State Department grant for that work. What what interest does the U.S. State Department have in cultivating debate? Why why do they want to why do they want to fund your work? That's a that's a great question. Again, the the on the ground director there is a guy named Jean Michel Hebenez, uh, and he's the head of I Debate Rwanda. He did uh, tr- debate training as an undergraduate at Towson University, and then at Pepperdine he got a master's degree. And the local uh, U.S. ambassador, uh, based in Kigali, is a former debater. So I think that helped us in terms of an application. But there is, especially for the U.S. State Department, a lot of democracy promotion. And they do perceive debate as a tool for building democracy. Uh, again, this, this wasn't a specific part of it, but even the United Nations actually has some initiatives in Rwanda which relate to building debate. Um, I was actually there in 2017 training security forces and using my James Farmer book and uh, techniques of nonviolence to kind of help those security forces negotiate conflict. So some of them are, you know, ethnically driven and things like that. And so debate is a great nonviolence resolution tool. And so it, it comes up a lot, actually, in Rwanda, especially about trying to break the cycle of, you know, vengeful violence that, uh, can really affect any part of the world, including the United States. But but it's certainly an important history, uh, like I said, on the 25th anniversary for that country. That's fascinating, uh, especially as we're seeing the rise of uh, more activism that seems to cross the line into violence in the United States. That's a uh, thinking about debate as a tool of, of uh, really uh, resolving conflict without resorting to violence may be a helpful way to frame our discussion today. Uh, Absolutely. With that, let's get into it. Um, uh, as Ethan mentioned, we started these this summer series kind of out of both of us thinking about the death of George Floyd and then the response to it. Uh, walk us through your take on the events surrounding George Floyd and the responses to his death. Are are I, mean, I I know we've we've thought about this a lot over the last few weeks. It seems like there's a bunch of different narratives that different people are telling out of those moments. So, what's your read on all of that? Yeah, no, and I think there's some things that are sort of self-evident that most people would agree about. I mean, I think it's sort of evident that George Floyd was killed in a terrible way. Uh, the policing in that particular incident with the neck chokehold, uh, where, you know, the officer has a knee on his neck for like eight minutes. I mean, it's absurd. It's, it's bad policing. Uh, I think there should be uniform condemnation of, of what happened there. I think... After that, it sort of gets complicated, and that's what that's what we're asking about. I mean, I like to begin with you know some positives, and one is that immediately this officer was charged. Uh, I would say fairly immediately, all of the officers, even observing the scene, were charged, uh, and we have serious uh, you know murder charges against this officer. This officer is in jail, um, and I think there is a lot of movement. The Justice Department at the federal level is. Uh, looking into it and things like that. So I like to, and again, I have a kind of a big, a big historical reach on this kind of thing. We'll probably get into this, but uh, yesterday was the 56th anniversary of um, the killing of Cheney, Schreiner, and Goodman in 1964. I think that 
killing almost certainly involved police officers in Mississippi. I would say, and I think we probably should look at the low point of police brutality. If you compare the details of what happened there, where they hid the body, they denied that those people had even been killed for like six weeks. The bodies weren't found until like August 4th of 1964. You compare that to the American reaction to Floyd's death today, and you have a very different American society that is repulsed by a black man being killed in this way. And so I think that is a good thing. Now, does that mean that we should be passive or accept the death of George Floyd? Absolutely not. But I really don't see that in really any reactions that I see. And in that sense, I think we can make progress forward. Now, I think, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about this further, but I think there's a very real risk that in the reactions will actually reduce the quality of police interactions with all suspects and certainly including black suspects and that we could actually make things worse for black bodies if, if we're not careful in terms of how we weaken police forces and uh, kind of torp and construct them uh, in ways that are, are not helpful. And so I'll, I'll kind of hold it right there. But I mean, I definitely think it's a good topic for y'all to be exploring. I know it's going to impact, you know, most debate resolutions. Um, and it, it really has for at least five years, maybe 10 years in college debate and certainly a lot of high school debate as well. So I'll kind of leave it right there. But that's kind of what I'm thinking initially. I definitely have a big in, is interest in this and have taught on it really probably for 25 years as a pretty important part of almost any class I ever taught. I think it's really interesting to see how that that some of those changes are already happening. I was uh, I, I poked the bear just a little bit this morning on a, a Facebook debate coaches group where someone was arguing that we need to rename Lincoln Douglas debate because that, of course, is think, bringing up a, a debate about slavery and that even the uh, the argument was made that uh, naming a values oriented debate, even though for many people, it's not really values oriented anymore. It's more the more a one man policy debate kind of thing. But um, but naming it that seems to already place, I think the phrase was a, a white morality in a position of privilege over a black morality that would look at that whole era as sort of indicted. Uh, it seems to me that already what we're getting is a whole new set of conversations uh, and that initially, at least as of this morning's New York Times, uh, currently that's leading to a whole bunch of statues being removed and kind of the the, uh, the American Natural History Museum in New York City asked permission from the city to remove a statue of Teddy Roosevelt and, the, and Mayor de Blasio agreed. And so that statue's now gone. Uh, it seems like we're now having a whole new set of conversations about whether or not we need to have uh, even any mention or any visual representation of these parts of the past. Uh, and I, I don't know that that's where anyone saw this going three weeks ago, but that certainly seems to be where it is now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that thing about the Lincoln-Douglas debate, because I would bring that up on your show this morning, and then I saw that you were commenting on it. That was actually like the last thing I did before I... I got on with y'all this morning, and I was like, well, I'm going to bring this up with Josh. And they're like, oh, wait, Josh is making comments on it. And I, I agree with you, and I really think, to be frank, I think it would be unfortunate to change the name of Lincoln-Douglas debate to something else. And, and I do think, obviously, we're, we're facing a cancel culture where the idea of obliterating and removing history will positively impact some future. And it really... Uh, the evidence for that is not good. And uh, I know I was personally really disappointed. I think it was actually last year I wrote an editorial for the Dallas Morning News 
about kind of the Confederate statue controversy. And my main point with all these things is like, is try, I'm okay with even moving statues. I'm, I'm really hesitant about any sort of uh, erasure of anything with history. Uh, I think contextualizing is good. Um, but my main thing is to put up more or new historical points. Uh, and so, like, you know, it's sort of obvious, but like, and I've got it here. Like, I'm a big fan of like James Farmer. I've written about James Farmer. Like, let's have, you know, James Farmer statues, you know, things like that. Let's, uh, here at SMU, Martin Luther King actually spoke on our campus. There's no, physical memorial to it and, and so I don't, i'm always like well, let's create positive memorials and that's not let's not tear down uh past memorials so i'm actually really disappointed that people are actually seriously thinking about getting rid of lincoln douglas as a name of debate i i think that's a, a net bad again especially actually for black bodies uh so i i was intrigued that you were commenting on that because i i pretty much agree i don't think that's a good move yeah, there were there was. It'll be really interesting to see. I, I I never really know what the nature of those sort of moments in an online debate are. Is there just is there one person who's very vocal, and then four or five equally vocal people in support, or is that person somehow indicating the the view of the majority of, of people in a group? And in, you never really know. But let's let's get out of debate world for a moment and get back into the wider conversation about uh, policing in the United States. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, on this. Uh, it seems like over the last three weeks, uh, I've seen lots and lots of conversation about the narrative of police brutality. There have been calls for def defunding the police uh, and uh, calls for ending qualified immunity seem to become really common. In your view, is there a problem with how police work is done generally? And if so, what's the nature of that problem? Well, I guess I'm kind of stuck on the backside of that. Um, I, I do think there is a risk, both on race and many other issues, that we're asking police to do too much. Uh, you know, I think that there, you know, is, there is some challenge to having to do a, such a range of activities, and, and uh, cities and municipalities might be able to supplement that. And I will say that part of the lens I look at this through, especially coming from the Dallas area and growing up here in the Dallas area, I do think a lot about the really horrendous events that happened here in Dallas uh, on July 7th, 2016, when five Dallas police officers were killed, kind of in a similar pretextual conversation to like what we're having here, where literally on that evening of July 7th, there was a protest about police brutality involving uh, black men, black men who had been killed. But Dallas police officers were doing, I thought, a very incredible job of protecting civil rights to protest that question, even posing uh, with photos with protesters that had pretty derogatory signage about police, and yet they allowed themselves to be photographed. And unfortunately, at the end of that rally, Micah Johnson, someone who had been influenced by the New Panther Party, uh, sat up in a uh, parking garage and killed five officers, shot 12. And so uh, I, think, I think we do need to be careful about the kind of conversation that will actually make things worse. I think I think the defund the police argument is a plainly uh, unworkable and frankly counterproductive idea. I mean, the closest empirical example that we have that is Camden, New Jersey. And really, when you study that case, what you find is that they rebuilt the police force with even more police officers. Uh, and so when we create this kind of cynical mindset that the police are out to get us and that they're really terrible, 
what unfortunately happens, and this is empirically observable since 2015, something that's called the Ferguson effect, you get more crime and violence, especially against the black community. We've seen that in St. Louis. We've seen it in Baltimore. And I think we're already seeing it in other places. So the ironic thing is that we need to strengthen police, probably with better training. We do need, I think, force escalation training where police officers learn that, yeah, lethal force is a last resort. But, you know, building a ladder that has more than like two rungs on it about uh, lethal force escalation is probably a practical thing. And, and again, and it's hard, I think, for a lot of people who may be just starting in on this issue. We have actually a lot of empirical data about training police and things like that and these things going up and down in different municipalities. So we need to look at that data and, and do it correctly. Now, one of the things that I think has productively come out of BLM, uh, there, there has been a website that kind of details eight things that they want besides defunding. Uh, and there, these are things like barring chokeholds, which, uh, again, I think, I think there has been a federal order now to ban chokeholds, but those were banned like here in Dallas like in 2004. So um, I think looking at some of those eight proposals is, is legitimate, but, there is a very real risk that we will impulsively uh, limit police or, or deter people from applying to police uh, units in ways that's actually going to make things worse for everyone, including the black community. That's really intriguing, in part because it, it fits something I read last week in uh, the uh, uh, I forget if it's a magazine or a journal, but it's called City Journal. Uh, but yeah. in, uh, their publication, they ran an article by a think tank analyst, an African-American scholar who uh, was walking us through in that piece all about kind of his journey to try and like thinking through what do we do in the aftermath of George Floyd. And one of the things he talked about that I've since seen other people talk about the this perspective. If they say this, if white people say this, they get attacked by Twitter mobs usually, uh, but he has said this as an African-American who had studied the data, uh, that there is a lot of data about black-on-black -black violence that is being ignored by the mainstream media and being ignored by uh, kind of the, the Black Lives Matter narrative, and that at least the way he looked, he posted the numbers, the vast majority of violence that police deal with is not, it's not white police officers attacking black men. It's members of the black community who are acting criminally towards other members of the black community. So uh, what you're saying about the, the danger here and kind of one narrative becoming dominant at the cost of protections for the black community is something I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. And I think we've kind of seen that. Ethan, were you about to say something? Or? Nope, I'm good. Okay. I, I think we're seeing that almost every weekend now in Chicago, even this, this past weekend, you know, terrible events. And, and it is a, a consequence of, and again, what I was talking about earlier about the Ferguson effect, about as police withdraw, as police are more fearful of engaging the public in any way, the public becomes more endangered. Um, I will say, like, in the aftermath of those shootings here in Dallas in 2016, one of the short-term positives, and I think some of this is being reversed right now, but initially enrollments to police departments increased. And to be honest, that's one of the things that we need to happen. We need more enrollments. I actually went to a, a BLM rally in my local community, and I think that I, I don't agree with a lot of what they're saying. I'm not sure they deserve positive endorsement, but I wanted to kind of see the arguments and listen to the dialogue. 
they invited the police chief from our community to come up on stage. And I think he did the exact right thing when he walked out there to kind of a potentially hostile audience. He said, if you want to change community policing, we need you to sign up and join the police force. We need to change what our police force looks like. That actually happened in Dallas in the summer and fall of 2016 in the aftermath of these protest events. Um, and that's the kind of thing that needs to happen. We need to have more candidates to police academy, and we, meet, we need to be able to indicate discernment and turn down uh, an officer like the one who did what he did in Minneapolis. I mean, this guy had 18 previous infractions, and, you know, there, there's some reasons apparently, maybe with the police unions, that's another thing that probably deserves some, some uh, examination, but we need more candidates to the police academy from which to choose and then that, that to have the option of better training where these kind of things don't happen. That makes a lot of sense because I'm assuming that police departments function kind of like other public uh, uh, public organizations do. That at the end of the day, they need bodies in uniforms. And so if they have more applicants, they can be pickier about the qualifications that those applicants have to meet. But if the city got, the city budget has said this year we will have 300 police officers, 50 of whom must be in the new class of, of cadets or whatever, or candidates, and if only 51 apply, the top 50 are the ones who are going to be accepted to the police academy. Is that is that an accurate understanding? Absolutely. And we're already seeing the data on like the classes right now. And these classes are shrinking, especially in places like Atlanta, where, again, we don't need less police officers. We need more. And we need to, you know, uh, root out what everybody kind of says, bad cops and this kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, as, as people talk about, there, there are bad doctors. And I've heard people analyze that. Like, they, they murder patients. That's actually hospital fatalities, surgical fatalities are a pretty big deal that people largely ignore. Um, and there are even cases of malice where, so, but again, you just want to have a good surgeon, you know, a non-malicious surgeon. So we need to do that same thing with police. And that's where uh, it's hard, but I think we do need to challenge the basic defund argument because what that's going to do is encourage uh, bad police officers to be stuck on those police forces. And that is going to make the problem worse. And that's what I think debaters and policy analysts need to be focusing on what kind of things would you have us not ask the police to do anymore well i think one of the things that's really tough uh is welfare checks um there was actually a pretty bad case here in fort worth where and it's i don't know for sure that it really was racially motivated but an african-american woman was shot through a window on a welfare check and it was just something gone terribly bad. And so I, I think, um, you know, I actually had a debater of mine recently who, who was kind of called for a welfare check and the police came with lights to his house like at, you know, three in the morning. And it's kind of a scary, risky situation. So I think, you know, if there's a way to do welfare checks differently and maybe without the police, I think I think that may, may, might make some sense. Um, I mean, that's the, that's the one that definitely jumps to my mind. I can't say that there are others that are for sure on my mind, but, um, you know, I, I think there may be some issues in, in traffic stops or whatever, where, you know, sort of like with tolls, we've gone to such an automated toll system that there might be a way to just, you know, take a picture of your license plate, send you a ticket in the mails that you were speeding, you know? Yeah. Uh, now I have a lot of libertarian friends. They hate that kind of stuff. But in a way, you're, you're changing the nature of police 
uh, to human interaction, and I, I'm I'm kind of for some of that in reducing these risks. Yeah, it does seem kind of like a double pronged issue because we it makes sense that we need more applicants, like a larger pool to choose from. And I think it's really interesting that he actually went to the BLM rally and saw the chief of police say that, and that he had the guts to say that in front of such a massive crowd and potentially hostile crowd. Um, so it makes sense that you would need a bigger pool, but it also makes sense that we need to ask the police to do less. Like, I mean, because like you said, welfare checks, and I can think of a couple other things too, that it, it just seems like we, we put a lot on police when there's not that many of them, or at least not a large enough pool to justify asking that much of the police when there's clearly other solutions that, that could be implemented that would solve the issue the same way or probably a more efficient way. As much as I hate it, um, Ben, I think you're probably on to something with automating traffic stuff because uh, I, I can't tell you how many red light or how many red light tickets um, me, my mom and my brothers got when the city of Virginia Beach put red light cameras in. And I mean, we were just all used to driving. So, like, oh, yeah, I can I can make that. And you make it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you 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 are past the line and they get the picture and it's it's very efficient. Uh, and I know recently in uh, in Nightdale, North Carolina, they've started putting um, solar panel speed monitors in place. Now, they don't trigger a ticket, but I imagine it would not be hard to have that just automatic if they can automatically sense you and then just pair that with a camera, it would not be difficult to have a and put a solar panel on it and the power is self-generating. And suddenly, I mean, because right now I. And hopefully this won't get me in trouble, but I, I usually drive between five to 10 above the above the speed limit wherever I'm at. I think like most people do. Uh, and as long yeah. as I'm in line with the other cars, I'm usually pretty reasonably safe in doing so. So safe from getting a ticket. Safety in numbers. Exactly. You don't want to be the one leading the pack on the interstate. That's a dangerous place to be for getting you a ticket. There's a navigation app called Waze. And it will tell you all of the red light cameras that people have reported so that you know to slow down when you get to that specific stoplight and stop before the line. Well, yeah. And there's there's I mean, North Carolina is famously it's legal to have radar detectors in this state. Like as soon as you cross into Virginia, there's big brown signs say radar detectors are illegal in the state of Virginia. But I mean, so there's all kinds of competing technology. But I think that's really interesting to think about. One thing I thought of as you were mentioning that, Ben, um, took me back to uh, an 18th century history class in college where uh, Dr. Stewart talked about the original purposes of police and how, how I had always kind of assumed that, you know, police have been around for like centuries and thousands of years, which is not true at all. Uh, policing is an effect of urbanization and moving from small towns and villages where everyone knows each other to suddenly you have a large city of between 5,000 and 500,000. And uh, those were the big cities once upon a time, the megalopolises of the uh, of 1810. And suddenly, Sir Robert Peel in London is in charge. The king has tasked him with developing this thing that they eventually name a police force. And the reason they need it is because suddenly you have people in town that no one has ever seen before. 80% chance that they're there legitimately. 20% chance that he might be Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and someone <laughs> has to be the one who goes and like investigates this. So... We now live in this time period where the normal sit size city is one that I mean the, the the small town of the 
the mythical 1950s where everyone knows your name and it's like the Cheers song. Like that barely exists if it exists anywhere anymore. So I I don't see a world without policing of some level. And so I really like your idea of we need to focus on the what is the human element here that we can't automate, which seems like the same kind of conversation happening in most industries. Uh we, we've education has gone all in on technology to do as much grading as possible, but it can't replace the human element of a teacher and a student and the transfer of knowledge. Well, what does that look like for policing? I think is a really interesting question that's worth further consideration. Well, I think one of the things you're kind of bringing up there, some of the best reforms that have ever been done on police, you emphasize the idea of community policing, which in a sense, reestablishes what you're describing where the officers actually know the people that live in the community and things like that and they're better able to discern so yeah and so the camden reforms in new jersey they, they kind of follow that but that meant they had to have more police officers i'll also say like when we look at this in terms of race i will say one of the most interesting and kind of a wild thinker but i think really deserves some attention is a guy named james meredith James Meredith is very famous because he was the first black man integrated in the University of Mississippi. Some people think he almost precipitated his second civil war when that happened. But in his uh, 2012 book called Mission from God, he says that every black church in Mississippi should be responsible for every black child within two miles of the church. And in, in essence, it's kind of like what you were describing earlier, like there should be different communities kind of looking after each other and shouldn't just fall to the police uh you know and it could be the church it could be other groups and things like that but in essence we're communities and we're looking after each other um meredith has maintained that argument for like i don't know at least 20 years and remember maybe you may not be aware in letter from a birmingham jail uh Martin Luther King concludes the letter by saying, someday the South will remember its heroes, Ben like James Meredith. Um, but Meredith is still alive. He's probably one of the most famous civil rights heroes that's still alive. Has a lot of really unique ideas about what we're talking about. And one about just sort of knowing your community is, is one of them. And I, I actually think it's kind of underrated. But there's other things in his book he gets into uh, that are kind of shocking and very... Uh, sort of counter to the current trend, but I think he's actually quite right about a lot of them. That is really interesting. I don't suppose you're in contact with James Meredith. Like, do you know him personally? Uh, you know, it's funny because I have looked into that and I'm going to keep looking into that because I teach a civil rights class at SMU and it actually involves a trip where we travel across the South. We even look at the James Meredith statue at the University of Mississippi. I just became part of a faculty group that's looking at uh, Christianity and the Academy. Uh, and by the way, Meredith has a great speech that he gives at Harvard in the education school in 2013, where he just rocks the faculty uh, with this speech because he's so uh, against the grain. But uh, I really am. I am actually looking into trying to meet with him personally. He, he's obviously pretty far along in years, and he, he's difficult to interview. Um and I've watched interviews enough to realize that that's true, but I, I still am very intrigued. And I wish there was more public commentary from him. The book he wrote, Mission from God, in 2012 was co-authored with a guy named, I think, David Doyle. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. I kind of can tell. I think he's managing Meredith. Because Meredith's a real wild guy. Um, 
he actually attributes his successful integration to Mississippi to Ole Miss. Uh, I, I read a passage from the book in my civil rights class, and I, and I say, how does this sentence then, how do you imagine Meredith saying, this is how I got integrated? And nobody in the class can ever figure it out. And he says, 20,000 guns. He credits the U.S. Army for basically invading Mississippi, and through guns, uh, he, he's able to be integrated. The other really great story in that book is he sort of famously in the 1950s picks up Martin Luther King from the airport. This is before King is becoming just super big. He's still pretty big, but he's going to speak at this black college that Meredith is at. But people are afraid to pick him up because he's such a sensational figure uh, that nobody at the black college would pick him up. So Meredith goes to the airport because he's kind of a wild, brave figure, picks him up, brings him to the campus. King gives his talk on nonviolent civil disobedience. And at the end, King says, are there any questions? Meredith raises his hand. Meredith says, there's no way this nonviolent methodology will ever work. You know, you've got to be forceful. You've got to use the law. You've got to use law enforcement and things like that. And the people, according to Meredith, the black community in that hall gets so angry. They start using the N-word and shouting it at him. They pick him up over the objections of King and throw him out of the chapel. And it's ironic because King's like, don't, I want to talk to this guy. And this is the guy that actually brought him to campus. But Meredith's book exposes something that I think is really important for all of us today, which is that there were so many different perspectives, and still are, about how do you reduce discrimination. Meredith had this very strict American constitutional view of it, that she forced the Constitution to do what it is supposed to do. And for him, it definitely worked. But we tend to romanticize certain parts of the movement and de-emphasize others. But that's why I was talking that, about that letter from a Birmingham. Bill. Like we we need to go back and talk about Meredith. He's still alive, and we need to really you know ask him like, what do you think? I don't know that anybody's really interviewed him right now, and I I know he would say something really really wild, but uh, it'd be something we need to think about. I think everyone sort of has that one opinion that's like it's or at least one opinion that's relatively edgy. But you it's like it's just to that point where you you'll either tend to like hide it or like sugarcoat it a little bit or you'll some people will make it so radical that it sort of matches the radical narrative or trendy narrative that people are perpetuating that day. But like imagine if everyone said what they thought like Meredith did. Because he he just he just said it flat out to the point where he got thrown out of a chapel where the main speaker was actually trying to speak with him. That's ridiculous. Like that's crazy. Yeah, I would no, I would love to hear an interview of one of Meredith's interviews for right now. Yeah, and I will say, like, I would recommend the 2013 video of him at Harvard, and also there's an interview with him with Museum. Museum has an online interview with him, and you can tell that they got two interviewers working with him, and they just can't contain him and then like in five minutes it's like okay that's enough we're done you know, it's like, <laughs> that's I mean, awesome i i was like you know and they, they had his wife and she's still alive too and i think she's kind of there to temper his kind of edgy views but uh you know i think it, it, when you put it there with the the letter from a birmingham jail he's a fierce individualist that's kind of the, the thing that's different about meredith and and very american like he served in the u.s military very pro-constitution uh, but I, again, I think there are a lot of voices out there that are honestly not included. Meredith's probably the most 
famous, not included voice in our contemporary conversation about these things. Interesting. I'm glad you told yeah. us a little bit about him because I hadn't I had known about him. Uh, he is not yeah, somebody I've studied either. Uh, well, Dr. Vogt, that's probably a good transition to a, a different question. Uh, I am very curious about your thoughts on this next one. Uh, so what insights can you offer to us about the difference between protesting and rioting? Uh, and as a follow-up then, what obligation does government have to maintain rule of law when people are rioting? Uh, in North Carolina, last week, state police received a stand-down order that facilitated increased rioting and led to the decapitation of a couple of statues in, in Raleigh. Uh, is that, in your view, a legitimate act of protest? Or is there is there something that we need to nuance our understanding on here? Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. And again, you know, I, I in some sense, sort of classical about it. But although the, the classical thing that I'm referencing are still, I think, kind of lost. I mean, I did write this book uh, about James Farmer Jr., the great debater. I really do think he literally wrote the book in terms of... Uh, protest in terms of riot and there are i still think there are 13 rules about what you had to do to engage in what he called and what king also called non-violent direct action i mean that was the full terminology that they used um and and really everything that king did in the way of non-violent direct action came from james farmer the interesting thing about that is that it actually comes from india and from gandhi uh, there's actually a book from 1937 called War Without Violence. Uh, that book was an effort to document what Gandhi was doing in India. And the in, in the 1940s, early 1940s, Farmer and, and a group of activists in Chicago adapted these rules to the American context. And, and what I argue in the book with James Farmer is that over a 25-year period, those protests were thoroughly effective. And so, for example, in the first protest that they, they do at a segregated restaurant in Chicago, uh, they actually called the police in advance and said, here's what we're going to do. We want you to know what we're going to do. It's highly coordinated with the police, and it's not anti-police at all, such that when the restaurant owner calls the police, they get called repeatedly because black people are sitting in the restaurant expecting to be served. The police finally tell the owner, like, if you keep calling us unnecessarily, we're going to arrest you. And a lot of people, I don't think, know the original irony of the origins of this specific method that some people sort of imagine that they're imitating. But I think a really effective protest would effectively coordinate with the police and, and, and create you know, that First Amendment space about freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Uh, and, things like that. and by the way, that's something that even though Meredith didn't agree with the techniques, some of the presumptions of that about the Constitution working to that end, he absolutely agreed with. And so I think the destruction of property, I think it makes no sense. The rioting, I don't, and again, there are studies on this. There's a, there's a separate study that I actually just got out of a psychology magazine I'm probably going to put in my current book that I'm working on right now that showed between like 1900 and 2000, they specifically looked at violent protests versus nonviolent protests. And in every metric, the results were much more positive for nonviolent protests than for violent protests or anything destructive. It turns public opinion against you. It causes the laws to be passed more adversely. It causes the outcomes that the protesters want to be worse in the next, you know, two, three, five years. So 
there's really no good argument for violent protest and rioting. And I think that sets up the second part of your question, which is, yeah, I think there's an obligation on the part of authorities to maintain peace and to maintain order. And so that's where we are getting kind of some paradoxical situation, especially in Seattle, where we basically kind of have a no-go zone uh, here in the U.S. where CHOP is functionally, you know, semi-sovereign and things like that. But that that's really, in essence, what was going on. Again, back to my original example about uh, Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman being killed in Mississippi in the summer of 1964. You have these quasi-sovereign zones of, frankly, white supremacism. I mean, you, you don't want to have independent zones where people are just arbitrarily allowing violence or even implementing it systemically. So we do we need to have order kept and it needs to be in deference to the First Amendment, which has, I think, are the key rights to operationalize a proper protest. So what do you think it is about protesting specifically that makes it or nonviolent protesting specifically that makes it so effective? Because it can't just be the attention grabbing because we've seen riots grab far more attention than nonviolent protests, at least in the day by day news. So what's the what's the differentiating factor between violence and nonviolence that makes the nonviolent protest so effective? I think the key ingredient is the idea of resentment. And I think, you know, you're always going to have someone who doesn't agree but when property is destroyed, and of course, when people are killed, uh, when police officers are killed, and again, black police officers are killed in this process, this is something that then uh, directly attacks the premise of a lot of what we've been saying about Black Lives Matter. Like, well, does, does Officer David Dorn, does his life matter, that officer who died, you know, I think uh, in St. Louis, you know, trying to stop some of these violent protests? So there's a resentment and a backlash that forms around violent protest, and it happens for the immediate victims and their families, for, for those that own the business and things like that. They don't agree with the movement. They don't even agree with the thrust of maybe the justice that was described in the original ideals of the movement. And so, like I said, in, in many movements, not just the one that we're talking about right now, it's been proven to cause the movement's goals to be moved backwards and for a resistance to build up in the public. Uh, and again, when I did the archival research on Farmer and his group between like the 1952 and 1960, it was shocking to me how many cases there were where restaurant owners just willingly and voluntarily gave up a policy of segregation, not because of threat of law or punishment or penalty. There's an incredible case where Farmer stands in like a cafeteria for 45 minutes and holding a little paper cup trying to get mayonnaise in the cup um and he nonviolently just stands there wanting to get mayonnaise but they don't want to serve him because he's black finally a teenager who's working at the restaurant comes forward and takes his cup and fills it with mayonnaise when that happens everyone in the restaurant stands up and starts applauding a standing ovation breaks out after 45 minutes of just standing nonviolently saying can i have a cup of mayonnaise and that then leads to the changing of this restaurant, I think in Denver, Colorado. I mean, I was shocked at the dozens of instances that I saw just in looking at the archival research. And I think there's so many things. And that's where I think in these cases, it sounds strange, but sitting down and talking to the police officers with the black community, you know, in the neighborhoods where things are dicey, I think those kind of ongoing conversations would have shockingly good results, not because I speculate to that effect, because I've observed that 
in looking at worse race relations situations from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. So the resentment is, is sort of the simple reason why these things don't work, Ethan, in terms of your question. That's a really good question. That makes a lot of sense because we – that. I kind of have seen an answer to the question from two perspectives now, because Josh and I just did an episode with Nick Higgins, who was his high school history teacher. And Nick was saying that the nonviolent version of protesting sort of provoke or it better provokes the conscience of the listener, which then we kind of talked about, like, what kind of listener would you need to have in order for a conscience to be provoked in the first place? I think we we generally concluded like it would need to be a you know, like a democratic sort of area where people are at least listening and it's not like an authoritarian regime kind of situation. But you, the nonviolent protests tend to provoke the conscience better. And I think to add your answer into that, it's because they they don't contribute to resentment. And once you once you stop contributing to resentment, then you're able to to grab the attention, I guess, in a different way of those who are watching. Yeah, I love that point. You know, and it's funny, we started this episode talking about what I was doing in Rwanda. I had this great moment in Rwanda back in December where uh, a Ugandan high school teacher, he had in his hand like a book about Martin Luther King, and he, w- he was reading it, and he said, Professor Voth, I mean, can you tell me, like, how did King do this? I mean, I, I know about his speeches and things like that, and I, he, but he was thinking about going back to Uganda and trying to get like reformed within their own country. And I got to sit down with him and say, like, here's the guy who, who taught Martin Luther King how to engage in the protest that actually changed American culture because it wasn't just speeches. It actually was a very systemic dialogue process that actually was derived from debate. That's why what we're doing here as a group is so important. A farmer's imagination was really triggered by the debate process that you could through dialogue actually talk to people. And again, what's shocking is that it really did work. What's sad is I think most Americans, I think even some very educated people in terms of civil rights, have no idea what actually transpired in the 1940s, 1950s, before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in the, in the mid-1950s, that actually was working. And I think it sets up a situation where people think, oh, you basically have to put a gun to somebody's head and make them stop doing some repulsive thing. That's actually really not true. I mean, they did strange things in the 40s. They would survey restaurant patrons about, like, what do you want? And and then they would go to the restaurant and say, like, our surveys show that your patrons actually want the restaurant to be desegregated. And the owner thought that the patrons wanted it to be segregated. They thought that helped their business. And then once they patiently did the survey and presented the data, they changed their mind. I mean, again, I looked at many, many cases like that. And I just think there's so many things like that. It's just sad that our media creates this sensationalism. Like, okay, we got to have a solution in 24 hours. Like, that's what leads to the violence. It's the impatience and this idea that I've got to literally put a gun to somebody's head or I've got to violently destroy something. That's not going to work. And the sad reality is we're just not aware of how successful these dialogue techniques have been and could be again in the 21st century. So you think our lack of awareness could literally just be a lack of historical education and, and how these things have worked in the past? Absolutely. And again, I started my teaching career at Miami University in Ohio. That's in Oxford, Ohio. That's where the Freedom Summer Activists trained in 1964. There's actually a memorial there. And I, I have students listen to King's I Have a Dream speech, which is classic, from 63. But I try to explain to them, like, okay, so when what happened 
to actually lead to change. It's not that people hear a nice speech and say, oh, I, I want to stop being racist. There was a dialogue process that involved hundreds and even thousands, a lot of college students that came to Ohio and sat where they sit, like in 1994 to 2008, where I taught there. And then they went into Mississippi. They went door to door. They even had schools. This is something that, again, I think almost nobody knows. There was a lot of voter registration in the 60s, which gets a lot of movie play and uh, historical treatment. But there were something called freedom schools where they actually sat down with children and educated them about black history and what things. And I'm, and I'm actually myself by now, I have a thing, a section called Freedom School. And I sort of say to students now, I'm like, you're going to be at Freedom School while I'm conducting class. And you're going to hear things that are being excluded from your historical memory. And that's going to be a part of empowering you to dialogue and act. And it's going to include debate because James Farmer definitely that's what motivated him. So I think a lot of consciousness reason can be done with better historical education, especially with the role that debate plays in these things. Because James Meredith, he, he did debate in college. James Farmer obviously did debate in college. Malcolm X did uh, debate in prison, ironically. Medgar Evers actually did um, debate. It's really shocking how many of the civil rights leaders actually did debate. Um, one of the saddest things that happened a week ago is that Thomas Freeman, the debate coach who taught Martin Luther King, he actually passed away here in Houston, Texas, uh, about the same time that Floyd was having his, his uh, uh, funeral here in Houston the same weekend that Thomas Freeman died. So with more education about these things, I think young people would actually be really surprised that pulling down statues isn't going to do a whole lot, but engaging in dialogue will actually do a lot, and we know that for a fact. That is an incredibly interesting and powerful point, Dr. Voth. I think in part because you tap into our immediate desire for a solution. And I think that's what that that immediacy, I think, is part of what motivates. I've, I've heard all kinds of speculation about who makes up the, the rioters, not the protesters, but the rioters. Uh, mm -hmm. I, some folks have told me, oh, these are bored out of school college kids who have been at home for two months. And now they're like the thing to do is to go down and join a riot. I had a couple high school students of mine who at least they rather foolishly, if they really wanted to, they ask their parents for permission to go join a riot, <laughs> which I think is really that's definitely against the spirit of a revolution. If you're really going to be a revolutionary, you can't get permission to be a revolutionary. But I, I think a lot of the folks who are there, if, if for the ones who are sincerely rioting, if we could draw that distinction between perhaps there are some what uh, Dr. Higgins called bad faith actors. If there are some good faith actors who at least are acting in a good with a, an intention to positively help racial tensions in America, they're looking for a solution that somehow goes into effect about an hour after they leave their house. But you're pointing us towards yep. a much uh, it's a it's a it's a bit more abstract. It's a much longer road uh, and it, it requires the actual work of building a relationship with someone who is different from yourself and discussing and dialoguing so that you create and discover that common ground between you that you can move towards a positive solution together. That's a much harder, harder thing to do than it is to go through a brick through a window or pull down a statue of someone whose life you really don't understand and then rip off his head, rip off the statue's head and, and somehow think that that's going to lead to positive change. 
Yeah, but do you even think our culture at this point in time is primed to do to pull off something like that again? Because you you know how impatient we are in in the current. Like I don't I don't know how impatient people were before because <laughs> obviously study history a lot more than I have, and I'm sure human nature hasn't really changed that much. But are we even prepared to pull something like that off? And if not, what would it take to get us back there? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, especially Ethan, about the patience. And that's the thing. When I spent hundreds of hours of archival research, that was the thing that came out to me like, whoa, we do not have this level of patience. Um, however, and I think that's why the context of this call is so great, is that debate and debaters really are the ideal candidates for this because we all fantasize like, I want to convince someone. I want to win a debate. Like, well, it takes some work. It takes some patience to do the research. And you have to go through several debates to start mastering that to where you realize, like, oh, this is how this is going to work. And so I, I do think social media has numbed or sort of eroded our patience, you know. And it is sort of like y'all are saying, like, okay, I want a, a solution in three hours to complete, you know, racial harmony. That's really sad because that is actually going to make it worse. If you do pick up that brick and throw it through the window, it's actually going to cause a reversal, that kind of thing. So um, I think debate is a very unique tool that we still have. It's still very appealing. And literally, like when I was in Rwanda, I mean, we were trying to get 150 kids, but 400 came. I mean, way more than we were expecting. And it's it's very popular. And that's, that's kind of the focus of my new book is that, it's globally really popular. Debate is just a phenomenal attraction device. And so it can tap into the impatience in the way of like, okay, I want to win a debate right now. But it also cultivates a certain patient attitude about researching and listening to the other person before you refute them to where some of the mental habits start to change to where it's not so foolish in the way that we're observing. Uh, Dr. Voth, on that note, let's shift to a, a different area. Um, uh, debate is often concerned with problems. That becomes the crux that gives really good grounds for a resolution. But a lot of debate is also concerned with pre-existing theoretical conditions. I wonder if you could help us with two two different uh, debate theories that are, are at least currently circulating. Help us understand those and, and what they might have to say to this whole discussion. Uh, one that I'm more familiar with, Ethan and I worked with this one when trying to uh, learn how to how to respond to a K earlier this year is the uh, Afro-pessimism critique. But then I remember you mentioned the other day uh, in a message the uh, a different idea called Afro-idealism. Could you walk us through these two different theories and help us know what did they offer to us as we're trying to understand the events happening all around us? Right. No, I love that question. And again, and to be very frank, uh, you know, Afro-pessimism is the dominant paradigm for examining all the questions that we've been examining today. And what is, I, I think the quintessential author, at least in the 21st century, is a professor named Frank Wilderson. And he's a professor in California. And he basically articulates, I, I think, a, a, a realistic description of the problem of racism which is to say that it exists at such a subliminal level that whites, for example, are unable to really fully grapple with how deeply racist they are or how deeply apprehensive they are psychologically about black bodies and things like that. Now, I don't think that's completely off the mark as a psychological observation, but what is problematic is that, in essence, he's forced to conclude in almost all of his writing that there's nothing we can really do to stop this. Now, I will say to kind of connect this uh, with the uh, 
kind of classical literature, uh, there's a guy named Stokely Carmichael who really became exhausted by the nonviolent movement. And he coined a phrase in 1966 while on a march with Martin Luther King through Mississippi uh, that honestly, the march was supposed to be James Meredith's march, which they kind of took it over because James Meredith got shot during it. But uh, Carmichael coined a phrase called black power. And that also essentialized the Afro-pessimist view. And he said in that speech in Mississippi, I think it was Greenwood, Mississippi, that uh, we should burn down every single courthouse in Mississippi. That's the only way we're going to get justice. The idea of burning it down, that, that has become a very common phrase in college debate. I, I myself have voted for it many times, even though it actually makes me really sad to have an affirmative and a negative both saying, oh, I would burn it down in 10 minutes. No, I would burn it down in five minutes. Like Those are the only alternatives that we have. Um, and this can be broadened out at an international level when you look at colonialism. And, and uh, there's an author by the name of France who talks about sort of the pervasiveness of colonialism and imperialism and things like that. But in, in Afro-pessimism, we have no hope. There is no opportunity really for improvement. Racism is too entrenched to stop. Now, what I have offered alternatively, and I have written about, I have another book called Social Fragmentation and the Decline of American Democracy, that I wrote with another political communication theorist. Uh, it has a chapter in it. It's called um, Making Black Lives Matter Today. And I try to articulate more of this Afro-idealist point of view. And put simply, Afro-idealism is examining and affirming the productive efforts to reduce racism, uh, both in the United States and in the world. And so, for example, that does mean looking at, like, Yes, James Farmer Jr., in the effort between 1942 and 1967, he successfully removed de facto uh, segregation between 1942 and 1967. But there are other things, especially like with police uh, techniques and things like that, to look empirically and especially at how the black community had been successful. I think a more cliche thing that people would recognize as young people, the movie Black Panther, you know, that envisions a really incredible, advanced African society that is unafraid and successful. I think those are metaphors that are, that are literal that we can see on the film and the screen. But we need to have Afro-idealism or what's going to happen. In fact, this is literally happening, what I'm about to say. There have actually been, in the past month, five lynchings of black men. Now, that might shock you. You might be like, where's that? Like, all of them involve black men who committed suicide by hanging themselves, okay? And they're actually, this is well, well known in the academic community, for the, like the last five years of the Black Lives Matter movement, suicides among black men have gone up dramatically. That is an adverse impact of Afro-pessimism. You are just thinking every day, the world is racist and there's no way out of that. You feel trapped and you feel like you should kill yourself. And that, even at academic conferences, I hear discussions about that. So without Afro-idealism, what we'll do is we will trap the black body in a mentality of hopelessness. And, and the only way out will be seen. There's a case uh, about three, four years ago where uh, a BLM activist actually killed himself on the steps of the Ohio Capitol. Uh, he actually, like, urinated on the Capitol and then killed himself. And he was just so upset about it. So we have to come up with better 
intellectual engagement. And that's what I'm calling Afro-idealism. And it means looking at people, like I said this morning, like uh, James Meredith, who's still alive, looking at James Farmer. But it means looking at this a little more controversial, like Candace Owens and uh, Larry Elder and some of these excluded black voices that actually do offer some solutions to the problem of racism, which is a real problem. But Afro-pessimism, I think, has literally reached a dead end, and it's a dangerous dead end. And we as a debate community, I think, need to respond to that. It's going to be hard because there's a lot of anger that surrounds this, But uh, and, and y'all, have, I'm sure, have encountered that. Not not quite as much as uh, as we might have because we've we've only ventured a little bit onto the national circuit, but enough that I expect if we as we try to get more into Nat Cert competition and especially if we get into more policy debate next year, which I'm slightly thinking we might because that's a very it's yeah. a little done event in our in our region, so it might be a good way for us to not be going up against established giant teams in our area, uh, but I I. That's that's really interesting and helpful, because I think at the very least, uh, we need to prep some Afro-idealism cards uh, that are ready if we run up against Afro-pessimism. We need to be ready with suicide stats to uh, point to as like, this is the implication of the of the argument framework that the other side is running. Well, that's that's well, really interesting. That sounds like well, a reduction right there. Yeah, that's, it's very provocative, but I mean, you know, imagine that you could convince black people to kill themselves. I mean, that would be the KKK fantasy dream, you know, and I think that's the awkward confrontation that needs to happen in the debate community. Because, again, I've watched it for years and it's, it's very sad. It's hard to get, you know, that link time to be accepted without just really ugly things happening inside that debate room. But. Uh, I will say uh, that's a lot of what my my writing focuses on now is is not to ignore a problem, but actually say, okay, what are the empirically successful efforts to reduce this? And if if an advocate cannot point to that, then I say, well, you don't have a credible what we would say in debate alternative. Um, And that's I think that is always the basic thing to say in most advanced policy debate. Is there an alt? Is there an alternative? If there's not, then you don't have a credible position worth voting for in this debate. Um, so, yeah, I, I encourage you all to explore that and, and, you know, and see what you can do. But I think looking at excluded black voices, you know, like Larry Elder, like Candace Owen, like you know, many others that we could list, I think probably a step in that direction. Okay. Ethan, I don't know if you were trying to jump in on that a minute ago. I felt like I kind of cut you off. No, I didn't. No, I wasn't. I was just thinking. I recognize Candace Owens because she speaks for PragerU a lot. Like she's like she's one of the voices. She has a podcast too now that she does the Candace Owens show, yeah. and she interviews a lot of people. I've heard her talking a lot. Yeah, and I think um, looking at a lot of different, you know, another person that I, I, intrigues me historically is a guy named Charles Evers. Uh, Charles Evers is a lot like Medgar Evers. Charles Evers is the older brother of Medgar Evers. Um, but he's alive and he gets very little attention. Um, I think because he's perceived as relatively conservative compared to the wife of Medgar Evers, Merle Evers, she gets a lot of press, but I think we need to start looking at, you know, when we say black lives matter, I think there needs to be an all black lives matter and start looking at who are the excluded black voices. The ones that, you know, to be honest, are, are termed uncle Tom's and really terrible things are said to them. I think a lot of times they're offering positive empirical alternatives and they're, and they're being excluded. So uh, it's a tough conversation. I'm not going to lie. 
uh, in the debate community, but I think it's something that's worthy of pursuit. You've definitely turned uh, my perspective of what Afro-pessimism is, because granted, I had pretty much no foundation of what it was before this phone call, um, which is why we're asking you about it. But it seems like you don't need to deny that racism exists in order to be granted like any chance of being voted for in a debate round. You just you, and what it seems like is you need to affirm that racism is something that can be fought against and bring empirical examples to prove that. And it, where it seems like it would be a great place to look, like you've said, is those black voices that are unheard, that don't get mentioned a lot, which is where a lot of the most successful examples are. So this seems to be the makings of a really great counter K that yeah. we should do. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And I mean, we have sometimes turned our counter K beloved community because that was a terminology that was used by King and Farmer and others. But I mean, yeah, just organizing any sort of, uh, you know, positive alternatives in the black community, I think is, is very powerful. And uh, I think there's a lot of room there to, to kind of do something. Because again, all I ever heard was you basically can burn it down. That's the all. And then we're actually seeing that. And I, I have warned the debate community for at least five years. Like, people are literally going to start going to the streets and destroying stuff if we keep going with this. Like, well, now it's not hypothetical. I mean, I actually even wrote a letter to the to an editor of a journal for our academic field when those five Dallas police officers were killed. And I said, look, I, I told you all that if you – and they actually censored one of my articles about what we're talking about. They wouldn't publish it in the proceedings. They published tons of Afro-pessimist literature – like, if you keep doing this, you're going to kill people. I'm not kidding. And it happened. I, I mean, and the, and the guy still didn't care. But we've got some pretty cynical people at the helm of uh, some of our academic institutions and journals and things like that. And we need young debaters like Ethan to kind of step up and, uh, you know, take a shot at it. Some good up and coming coaches like Josh, you know, to try to innovate here. It's just like the hope that there's no, it's like the situation where there's, there's still hope. There, there's always still hope to, to fighting racism with nonviolent, peaceful dialogue. Which is absolutely. I, I think absolutely. We've, we've kind of gone to, down to the point here where we've this this ultimately does come down to a it seems in my mind to be a clash, not just of empirics and not just of uh, strategies to win. But you've got a clash of foundational philosophy, what uh, Richard Weaver would often term the uh, metaphysical dream of the world and where. Uh, on the one hand, you've got a view that says there's no hope. Another, a different view that says there is hope, and and it's not a you don't have to be a moron, you don't have to ignore problems to say that there is hope for solutions. Like one other place I'd probably point to, um, Ben, you mentioned at the beginning of this, just a contrast between the response of majority white America to a police shooting of a black man in the 1960s versus the response of majority white America to police shooting of a black man in 2020. Uh, now, if you I, I don't think you can look at that and say that that's not some level of progress. Uh, and hopefully, right. hopefully our, our listeners will know that I don't count myself any sort of progressive. Uh, but I do want to note where there is uh, we, we've at least moved. There has been an there's been a uh, going on 60 year conversation in this country about the fact that we do have racial problems in the United States and we need to move forward to be one nation that's united rather than a uh, nation of different experiences. And it's certainly not we're, we're by no means we've not arrived. But the fact that there is progress should logically suggest that progress is possible. 
which should then defeat yeah. the Afro-pessimist exclusionary universal claim. Yeah, I have a slide that I use in my civil rights class. Uh, in 1968, the federal government was so concerned about what we're talking about broadly that they commissioned something called the Kerner Report. It's like K-E-R-N-E-R. All kinds of data on like high school graduation rates, college graduation rates, poverty, crime, anything you can imagine. Long list. I put a slide up with that data in a class, and, I, and then I say, okay, and this was in 2018 when I was using this. I said, okay, 50 years later, what are the stats for black income, black crime? Da, da, da. I just, and I, I challenged the students, like, fill in this spreadsheet. Tell me what the numbers are. And they're all shocked because they actually illustrate what you're saying there, Josh. Incredible progress. I mean, now there are things that I think are still problematic. I think the biggest one is incarceration rates. Uh, and I think that's one where, yeah, there's a lot of room for uh, debate about sentencing. And actually, there are some things that have happened in the last year or two, a couple years, that are positive in that direction. But black incarceration rates are actually pretty alarming. But on like 20 or 30 other criteria, it's actually pretty shocking how much better life has gotten uh, in the African-American community in the midst of a larger white culture. And yeah, so we need to be able to point to progress. And if we cannot, we actually risk making things worse for the black community if we uh, engage and vote for, I would say, Afro-pessimism. Well, that's a great transition moment to what's uh, probably going to need to be our last topic area today because I'm keeping track of our time. Uh, so as I'm sure you know, Ben, the 2020-2021 high school policy resolution reads, resolved the United States federal government should enact substantial criminal justice reform in the United States in one or more of the following, forensic science, policing, and sentencing. So, in your view, uh, will these protest riots and conversations shift where debaters take this resolution next year? Also, do you have any recommendations for teams that are already beginning to prepare? I know there are a lot of teams that are, uh, summer, summer doesn't mean a break, summer means time for deep dive in research. So, any suggestions you might make for teams that are already prepping on this resolution? Yeah, and I do think that the protest era that we're in will definitely have a huge impact on this resolution. I'm looking at it here on my screen as well. Uh, you know, and it's got these things about forensic science, policing, and sentencing. Um, I do think, like I mentioned earlier, some of the recent uh, criminal justice reforms that are trying to just honestly get people out of prison and things like that um, are, are going to be uh, successful and popular cases and things like that. I think, you know, sort of continuing those trends. I think on policing, I, I would say people need to look at those eight recommendations for policing that include things like no chokeholds and things like that. They have a summary where they show, like, what the Dallas, Atlanta, Detroit police departments have adopted. And, and in most cases, I would say about half of the reforms have been adopted. Now, I will say I don't think every single one of the reforms that they suggest is necessarily a good idea, but I think they are going to be popular ground for debate this next year. I think everybody ought to be aware of what they are. I, I think I would also urge people to look at um, a group called the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, it's headed by this guy, Brian Stevenson. I think his critique of prisons and criminal justice is probably one of the most influential critiques of the system. And, and I think a fairly credible one. Um, and I, I would be sure I understood that, both kind of the app and neg on Stevenson's argument. Uh, you know, they made that movie Just Mercy, a, a free Netflix download. I think people probably need to watch that and understand what's going on there. Um, 
you know, but like we said earlier, I think people need to start looking at uh, the silenced black voices on these questions. I would also say, just as a historical matter, I can remember in the 1990s when sentencing resolutions very similar to this one came up in the debate community. And the reason we adopted mandatory sentencing was to reduce racism. And a lot of people don't know that. They think these harsh sentences were just inherently racist. No, they actually wanted to reduce the discretion of local judges, you know, I'll say it, especially in the South, that would give heightened penalties in their subjectivity to these defendants. And so when affirmatives this year abolish mandatory sentencing, I mean, I think one has to be aware of the literature that there's a risk that judges would subjectively sentence black defendants more harshly than they would sentence white defendants. So I think people need to be careful that just abolishing mandatory sentencing, like on drug laws, for example, is some sure bet to reduce racism or reduce incarceration or something like that. There's a lot of um, things that have gone into these debates, and I can assure you that mandatory sentencing during the 1990s, which is where a lot of this stuff happened. In fact, Joe Biden was very involved in a lot of these things, and people are arguing about that. The original thinking on mandatory sentencing was like, this will reduce racism. But there's, there's good literature going back into the 90s and beyond. That It's not a simple thing to just say, oh, let's just get rid of mandatory minimums and we'll get rid of uh, racism. The subjectivity of the judges might actually make that worse. So I think that's the link turn that people will want to watch for if that's what the affirmative is doing. So I'll kind of leave it there in case you want to ask something else, but that, those are some initial thoughts. It's always worth looking at the unintended consequences of positions that uh, students want to raise. I mean, I think it's, I, that, that's one of my persistent bits of advice for folks on AF and NEG, no matter what kind of debate we're doing, that when your opponent is running an argument, you want to, one of your first thoughts on how to, on rebuttal needs to be, what are the unintended consequences of this position? So I think that's a really helpful unintended consequence that I'm sure plenty of folks are going to run to that one, but they don't really, they don't know the complexity of what they're, what they're arguing for, especially if all they did was get one of, uh, I know Ethan subscribes to a couple uh, card a day rec- or email uh, oh, Yes, LD card of the day. Yep. So if, if that's all you've got, you've got your card of the day, abolish the <laughs> abolish mandatory sentencing. And that's all the research you've done on it. I, I hope you get shredded if that's what you run and you go up against someone who actually did the research. <laughs> so. Uh, well, Dr. Vo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, to close us out, um, I, you, you've hinted at this along the way, but I'd love for you to uh, talk to us about why you've chosen to spend your career uh, developing young debaters. You've done a lot of other things. I know you've you've been on faculty at multiple universities. You're clearly a researcher and scholar, and yet debate has been a huge part of your life. And I see behind you on the video that our listeners can't see, but you've got lots of trophy glory that your your students have gone on to be very successful. Tell us, what, what is it about this activity that's worth dedicating your career to it? You know, that's a great question. And I know like my teaching mission, I, I have like a full page statement, but at the top of it, it says it is to equip individuals to have their voice. And I just think there's a better world out there when each person is not only able to think for themselves, but able to express it and say it. And that's where like, some of my theoretical work involves this kind of complicated term called discursive complexity. But it's really just a simple idea that societies are better when there's a lot of different ideas on the table. And I, I sort of ingest, but it's true, 
talk about like examples like North Korea. Like the only person who needs to do any thinking every day in North Korea is Kim Jong-un. Everybody else can just kind of keep it to themselves. And that makes for a worse world. It makes for a more violent world. It makes for people living less years of life. Uh, and so for me, doing this for really 25 years and more, I, I get to see young people grow up like Ethan, and I actually get them to see them doing things like being a prosecutor or an attorney or becoming a professor. And I get to see the exponential fruit of somebody who's able to express themselves effectively. Um, it, I mean, it has an impact on, like, I have a disabled daughter, and just me and my wife being able to advocate for her in the school system and to see her. She just graduated from high school, but she reads at grade level. I remember when she was in, like, second grade, they said she'll never be able to keep up with the reading grade level. But at our insistence and at our advocacy with our arguments, her life was changed, and she's a very different, happier person because of that. So I think there's just a tremendous fruit in teaching debaters and teaching young people about debate. And, yeah, getting to do it all around the world, it just becomes even more vivid and more powerful. Uh, when I was in Rwanda, it was funny because um, this is a conversation Jean-Michel and I have had many times before, but, like, where did Jean-Michel learn to do debate? And I found out he learned from one of my students. Like, one of the students I taught, like, between 1990 and 1994 – went on to be a debate coach at Towson University and had Jean-Michel Habaneza as a student. That's how he became excited about debate. And, and then, then we got to meet another person that Jean-Michel taught. So we had like these four generations in a photo together at a hotel in Kigali. And I mean, that's just really special. That's really priceless in terms of the value of debate. And so I, I love seeing people be empowered and seeing the world change for the better because they can argue and advocate for their ideas and that's what debate does and there's just nothing that does it better as a, a wonderful wonderful description i i love that mental picture of four generations of teacher to student, teacher to student all the way down and being able to kind of see the impact it's it's one of the most beautiful parts of teaching generally, but especially in this, that you can trace those sort of intellectual lineages and you can kind of see how people are shaped by different folks. Uh, we, we are very grateful for uh, your, your work in the debate world. And we've been, Ethan and I have both been directly shaped by that with your work with the Coolidge Foundation. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah. And thank you again for coming on the show. Ethan, if anybody wants to give us feedback or send questions for Dr. Voth that we could pass on to him, maybe consider in a future episode, how can they get in touch with us? Yep. Any any feedback, you know, fan mail, hate mail, whatever it is, questions for Dr. Voth, <laughs> you can send us at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can check out our website. That's www.whatstheres.com, where we have all of our social media and episodes posted. We have an Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore. And until next time work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs>